So I, you know, uh, many of you already know this, but up to this point, Dora Von Wald had been leading our internship program. And now that she is um, a practicing therapist uh, and has a different job, now I have the pleasure of overseeing our internship program. And so I'm just super excited about it. Um, and one of the things that I was telling them this, this morning, I sent them a video um, just saying that when I first came here as a freshman, I kind of jumped in and I got involved in our college ministry and I was helping um, on the worship team a little bit. And one of the things that's always a little bit intimidating when you come to a new church is just like, what are these people like? And what are they going to think about me? And am I going to fit in here? And I just want to say specifically, um, I mean, I, I, I experienced a lot of welcome from the college ministry and stuff. But the thing that stood out to me the most as a, as a brand new freshman back in 2008 was the welcome I received from some of the oldest folks in our church. And that I was up there with shaggy long hair, playing guitar in the back row. And specifically, I mean, there, was, there were many people who did this. Lee and Jan Jones, who are now with Jesus, would always sit right there. Um, and they were just cheering me on. And so I told the interns, I was like, hey, you know what? Everybody in this church is your biggest fan. And I just love that about Pleasant Valley, that we do. I think we do a great job of cheering on um, just the next generation of of people who are, who are growing in Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing. And so I just appreciate that about us and I want to keep it up. So as we get into Acts this morning, uh, the story that we're going to see is, um, I think, tied to an experience that I had as a middle school student. When I was growing up, my dad led our, uh, he was our youth pastor at, at my church. And one of the things we would do um, uh, on a regular basis is in the summer, we would take this trip we called the Colorado trip. And it was this really fun um, kind of discipleship relationship building trip where we would drive, take a long road trip over the course of a week. We would drive through South Dakota and Wyoming and Colorado, and we would do all this fun stuff. We'd camp and hike and rock climb and whitewater raft and all this stuff. And, uh, and it was awesome. It was super fun. One of the things that we would do every time was we would drive up the Rocky Mountains um, up to Rocky Mountain National Park. And so I was on this trip, again, probably sixth or seventh grade. And my cousin was along as well. He, my same, same age, one of my best friends still to this day. And so we were having a great time. And one of the things that I was super excited about is my cousin had brought his Game Boy Color. And so we're driving up Rocky Mountain National Park and me and my cousin Nathan and some of the other younger guys are all huddled around. I almost said cuddled around and that's probably accurate too. All, uh, we're all huddled around this tiny little Game Boy color screen playing Zelda or something. And so my dad looks back and he's like, what are you guys doing? Like we are literally in one of the most beautiful places in the world <laughs> and you're not even looking out the windows. And for me, I was like a little bit upset by that. Because on one hand, yes, okay, yeah, oh wow, cool mountains. But on the other hand, I also, you know, I, yes, I don't live in the Rocky Mountains. I don't get to see this all the time. It's very nice. But on the other hand, I also don't own a Game Boy, okay? So I, this is like my opportunity. <laughs> now, obviously, looking back, it's, it's, it's like very clear to me that that was dumb. 
that I should have just been enjoying that moment for those few hours that we were doing that, right? And also on that trip, like on the return home, we drove from Colorado on the way back up to Minnesota. We would drive through Nebraska. And you want to talk about a perfect time not to look out the windows. You know, I, so there was plenty of other opportunities, but, um, but, you know, like that, it just, to me, I always will remember that because it is a perfect picture to me of missing the bigger picture, that my view was so narrow, it was literally this tiny little junky color <laughs> screen that you can't even see very well because it's too bright. And, it, you know, it's, that was what I was fixated on. And there was this whole bigger thing around me. And I think it often can be that way. I think part of what the Holy Spirit is always trying to do in our lives when we're followers of Jesus is he's trying to widen our perspective to see that our little narrow view, the, sometimes the things that we are hyper-focused on, the things that we think are so important, maybe we're missing the whole thing. And so, um, so anyway, I think that's uh, um, that's very tied to what we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 11. So let's jump in these first few verses here. So where we're jumping in is Peter has just had this experience where kind of he, he almost in a certain way became an unwilling missionary, or at least he wasn't aware of this thing that God was going to do. He kind of had written off maybe a group of people that God was sending him to. And so God did some stuff in his heart. And then God, uh, through his, you know, obedience, and he got to see this whole family of, of, of non-Jewish people become believers. And so that's where we're jumping in today is, uh, is in uh, Acts chapter 11. So it says, The apostles and brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So God has just done this really incredible thing. And again, for Peter, he just, you know, he just went from his sort of Game Boy view to now being able to see a little bit of the bigger story that God was writing. He comes back to share that with his brothers and sisters in Christ. And what he hears from these specific people is not, wow, that's so cool. I would love to see that too. It's sort of like, uh, you did not do the right thing there. He gets, he's, he's met with criticism. And I think, you know, just, just, just for some background, um, Jewish life was very dictated by kind of the, the religious teaching of the time. Then, and basically what had happened was culturally over time, teachers had taken the law of Moses, which was the law that God gave to the Israelites, sort of like, this is what it looks like to be my special people. And he gave them rules on what, you know, how you should live, how you should relate to one another, and also how you should relate to God. And there were some certain things where it's like, here's some things that you need to do to be ritually clean, to, to essentially be able to worship God and be able to approach him. So it's very important. But what happened was then sort of culturally and religiously, there had been these other things that they had added on. Like, okay, so this, this specific thing, God says, will make me ritually unclean. So just in case I maybe would ever find myself in a situation that I might accidentally. So they started building up these rules that weren't God's word. They weren't God's laws, but they almost treated them with the same kind of authority. 
And it's, it's a big way that the Pharisees exerted authority over other people is that just got really, really, really detailed on a lot of different laws. And so what you have here are Christians. And again, the, 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 the text doesn't tell us that these people aren't believers. It's, you know, it, it, it really infers that these are genuine followers of Jesus, but they were coming from a very strict adherence to not just the, the law, the Old Testament, but also to just the cultural Jewish understanding of that and, and, and other things too. So they were just, at, essentially they were adding extra stuff to God's word. And so what you get a sense of is that they're like, you know, yes, basically Jesus saved us, but we also helped out a little bit. That's kind of the vibe that you get from this group. And again, when I, when I read this, I was like, wow, that does not sound like a party I'd want to go to, um, the circumcision party. But uh, obviously it's talking about like a group, like the Democratic Party, Republican Party, whatever. Um, but uh, to, to me, it's sort of funny because they, um, the, and I don't know if this was a self-imposed name or a name that was given to them. If Luke was like, how do I talk about these people that are just really concerned with circumcision? I guess we'll just call them the circumcision party. You know, like, I, I don't know who gave them this name. Uh, but basically, it's sort of like, it's just very obvious that they are hyper-focused on something that, um, that just is not something that Jesus cares about. Now, was it in the law of Moses? Yeah, absolutely. But now in the new covenant of Jesus's blood, we come to God through Jesus. Not through, uh, not through rituals, not through priests, but through our high priest, Jesus. So they have kind of their thing. And it just is, it's just interesting to me that when they hear that an unlikely group of people received uh, Jesus and received the Holy Spirit, that their first response is like, Peter, you know you're richly unclean now? They sort of don't even think about what he said. It's just, you did, you, you did not follow the right kind of procedure here, Peter. And I think we tend to like to identify with people in the Bible who are like doing the right thing. But I find myself unfortunately, often identifying with people doing the wrong thing. Like, for example, like you read the story of David and Goliath, and it's like, yeah, I want to be the David, and I'm going to go into battle, and God's going to fight for me, and he's going to slay my giants. And so this big thing that's in my way, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to, God's going to take care of it, and this kind of thing. But I think it's probably more accurate when we see the way that the gospel works. I think I probably identify more with Goliath. That it's in my nature, apart from Jesus, that I would be standing in opposition to God, everything he wants to do. Hey, I'm here. It's my party. This is my deal. And that Jesus is the one who has to come in and kill me, <laughs> kill my flesh so that I can have a new life in him. So I think it's important that when we see people like this, it's, kind of, it's easy to roll our eyes and be like, oh man, these guys are tools. Like obviously people. Um, but Sometimes we need to turn the mirror on ourselves a little bit. And this is what, this is what I think. And I think, we, I think we need to be so careful of this in the church that a critical spirit will make you miss the Jesus party. There's a bigger story that God's trying to write here and, and they've completely missed it. 
They've completely missed it. They've got a Game Boy-sized view of the bigger thing that God is writing. Now, if they, if they understood the scriptures that Abraham was told by God, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to set your family apart that eventually this becomes the Jewish nation. I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to bless you so that you would be a blessing to the Jewish nation, to people that follow all the right rules. No, that you would be a blessing to the whole world, to every nation. So there's been this thread that, uh, that really what God is doing in the, in the Jewish nation is to be expanded to the whole world. That's something that they should have expected, but they miss it because they're so freaked out about kind of the cultural side of things. Now, I think, again, that what happens often is sometimes we're so concerned with being right that we miss the heart of God. <laughs> That sometimes we're so concerned with things being the way that we envision them to be that we miss what God wants. For example, I mean, one of the, one of the super clear images of what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus, I think comes out of Galatians when Paul is writing about the fruit of the Spirit. Like, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, this is just what naturally starts coming out of you. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, patience. Did I say patience twice? I don't know. That's a good one. There's, there's probably more. Um, <laughs> and uh, anyway, th these, are, these are like descriptors of what does it look like when the Holy Spirit is having his way in your life. This is what other people experience from you. But if you ask, you know, people in general, people outside of the church, what do Christians look like? you would probably hear a different thing. You'd probably hear similar to what Peter is experiencing from the circumcision party. They're critical, they're judgmental, they're hypocritical, they're, you know, you can fill in the blanks. They're, you know, and they're, they're kind of being like not, not loving. They're kind of relationally aloof, keeping themselves like, oh, we shouldn't be around those people. And so you get a lot of that. And again, as I have conversations with this about people, one thing that I hear sometimes is like, well, people just think that because that's like what the media says. That's how the media portrays Christians. And it's like, okay, maybe that, that may be fair to a certain extent. But why is it that the media's voice on Christians is the only experience they have then? Because for me, if the media is telling me something about a certain group of people and then I meet one of those people and my expectations are shattered, I'm probably not going to believe the media anymore. But the reality is, is that for many of us as believers, either we are not um, displaying the fruits of the Spirit or we're just not active in other people's lives outside of the church. We're not giving them any other view than what they've heard or experienced. And so... Uh, you know, again, it just makes me think about when Jesus is, is having conversations with, with the Pharisees and stuff. They're like, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And he's like, well, you, you know. You know what it is. You recite it daily. <laughs> Love the Lord with your entire being. That's the greatest commandment. With everything that you have, love the Lord. And now it's easy to say, but man, in practice, that's very different, right? The Holy Spirit is, for those of us who follow Jesus, he's constantly working that into our lives. Because man, do we have an idolatry problem or what? I do. There's so many other things in my, in my life that I love. 
and I'll put them over God. I'll hope in things instead of God. And what God will do is he'll either say, hey, you have this place of idolatry in your life. And then we have an opportunity to be like, you're so right. You're totally right. I'm going to turn away from that. God, you're everything. You're all I need. I put my trust in you again. Or he'll allow that thing to disappoint us. (laughs) And we will be crushed (laughs) under the weight of an idol that fell on top of us. And then we have another opportunity to say, God, I was wrong. You have everything I need. I can't trust in this other stuff. You are eternal. You are faithful. You never let me down. So first commandment is is that. Love God with my entire being. And then Jesus says, and the second one is like it. Basically saying these two things are intimately connected. That if you claim to love God with your entire being, then the other thing must be true. You will love your neighbor as you love yourself. And like the good Pharisee inside of me would ask, (laughs) who's my neighbor then? And then that's where Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Where again, like we see in Acts, there's a person in need who needs help, needs salvation. And the people that should know God's word walk past because it would make them ritually unclean. And the person who almost doesn't know any better the Samaritan person is the one that says, wow, this person is in a bad spot. I'm going to help out and sacrificially gives them themselves so that this person can be taken care of and healed. And so Jesus says, those are the, those are the two commandments. Love God with everything, your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says the entire old Testament, all of the laws that God gave, it all rests on these things. So essentially what God is saying is that if you want to be obedient to God, then those two things have to be the foundation of everything. If you miss loving God with your whole heart and loving other people as you'd want to be loved, then you have missed the, all the rest of it. And you could be obedient to this one thing that agrees with your lifestyle and still be missing the whole point. And it's so, in other words, it's, it's the foundation of obedience. So the Pharisees, they, they knew the Bible. And, and, I, and again, scholars think that probably part of this circumcision party were Pharisees who had, who had converted to, to Christianity. So they knew the Bible really, really well. And Jesus told his disciples even, he's like, hey, you should listen to their teaching because they actually know what they're talking about. They know their Bible really well. So their teaching is actually good. It's truth. It's valid. He said, but do not imitate their way of life. Because what he said of the Pharisees is that they're whitewashed tombs. They put on a good show. I mean, they can preach. But if you come in contact with them on the street, you're going to be like, ugh, that stinks. And probably many of us have had experiences like that. And we see that you know, in the news or what, you know, whatever, that such and such pastor who was very theologically sound was, was morally and in the deepest part of their character, absolutely bankrupt. There was nothing. So they spoke with a lot of authority, but they had nothing to back it up. And there's just been many times, I mean, I can't tell you how many people who, who, you know, have, 
just you, you get to interact with somebody famous or somebody who's kind of a big name. And on the stage, it's like, wow, this is so cool. I feel so connected to them. They're really speaking to my heart. And then you meet them face to face and you're like, that guy is a jerk. Like if that was the, I've seen this, I've seen the stage stuff that connected with my heart. But then I meet them in person and it's like, I don't even know if that person is a Christian. I didn't see any fruit of the spirit. And let me just tell you, as somebody who speaks from a stage, this is easy. There's like so many resources out there to help you craft a good sermon. So in one sense, I have no excuse for how bad mine are. But (laughs) in the other sense, I could come up here and impress you with all of this knowledge, which I don't, but I could. (laughs) I could come up here and impress you. But then at home, my wife could be like, watching me on stage and be like, that is such a joke. I fear that. I don't want my wife, especially my wife and kids, the people that see me all the time, I never want them to think that's fake. It's got to be real. And that's what Jesus is after, is he's after our hearts. So again, theology, knowledge of God's word, man, those things are good. And they're so helpful, but they're only helpful in relationship with Jesus. Outside of a humble relationship with Jesus, they just make us ugly because they puff us up and they make us think that we're better than we are. And I think it's one of Satan's greatest strategies in the church is to get us just close enough to Jesus that we feel safe, but still we're the final authority in our life. Using God's word as a tool, not as something that we submit ourselves under. So we need to be careful. And I think, you know, again, if if you're like me, it's easy to point out what other people, like the ways that other people aren't obeying the Bible. And then ultimately, though, in my life, I get to pick and choose what goes and what doesn't. So like the people that are doing that specific sin, that's horrible. They're ruining their lives. They're ruining other people's lives. They're ruining our country. They're ruining the world. But my sins, yeah, maybe I'm a little greedy. It's fine. I'm just being financially smart. It's not a big deal. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not practicing a lot of generosity. Sure, I give some stuff here and there, but, you know, it's not that big of a deal. See, we like to be the final authority and it's the same type of thing that Adam and Eve were tempted with that we get to decide what's right and wrong. And again, without a humility under the authority of Jesus and his word, we're gonna miss the point. So the criticism is what Peter has met with. Then Peter kind of goes and describes and because we just were in this passage, we're kind of gonna just kind of jump over his recounting of what has happened. But basically he just recounts the vision that he had and then going and uh, being with Cornelius and his family. And then we'll jump in at verse 15 here. It says, uh, and this is Peter speaking. He said, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? When they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. 
See, when they hear the testimony of what God is doing, now they're silent. You know, the Bible says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. So when they hear the testimony, all of a sudden, now they have a better response. They've taken a second to listen, and then they just glorify God. They're like, God, you're doing this then. And they give him, they worship him. And I think, I think this is just a great application for us is that sometimes we need to stop trying to control, especially try to control other people. And we need to start worshiping God. Carl had said this really good thing to me a while back and um, I'll probably remember it for a long time. And I don't think this was his original thought, but I attribute it to him. And um, so he can take the credit today. <laughs> um, but he said, when you are trying to control other people, you give up your self-control. And I was like, man, that is so true. See, I think as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to not, we're supposed to be humble under the hand of Jesus to recognize what he can do and what I cannot do. What is his job and what is not my job? And one thing that I am called to do, I know, is to worship Jesus, to glorify him, to just, just to lift up his name and try to get the clearest picture of him that I can. And that's what it means to glorify. It doesn't mean we're trying to like glam him up. It means we're trying to get the most accurate view of him as we can. We're declaring who he is in, in truth and in faithfulness to like the reality of who he is. That's what glorify means. And so instead of trying to control other people, like this, is, this was their first response, the circumcision party. Their first response is like, Peter, you got to stop. And when they took a second and they just started praising God, they were like, okay, I guess, I guess this is what God is doing. And I think we have this problem, not, not even just in trying to control other people, but we just, I, and again, I'm just talking from my own experience and maybe you relate to this, but you know, there's a, there's a lot of problems in our world <laughs> and in our life. And if you're like me, you probably bring those up to God a lot probably takes up a lot of your prayer time. And we sort of say, hey, God, this is a problem. This is something I'm stressed or anxious about. And here's what I'd like you to do about it. And that, that can tend to be a lot of our prayer lives. Now, again, God invites us to bring all of our cares and anxieties to him. So there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I think sometimes we can miss the bigger picture when we, when we don't just take time just to praise him for who he is. And to remember that he's God. I think when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, that's why, that's where he started. Father, you are holy. He just starts there. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just acknowledging you're my father, which means you love me, but also you get to say what goes and what doesn't go in my life. That you're holy. There's nobody like you. You're God. And I want to be, I want my life and even this prayer time to be about your kingdom and not mine. And your will, but not mine. So when we come to him humbly in prayer, I think it's important just to come and say, God, what do you care about? Remind ourselves who he is and then just ask him that his will would be done. I think we, I think we don't do that. I think sometimes we don't do that. We don't take time to listen to the Lord in, in, in moments of prayer 
um, because either just because we're so busy and so there's all these problems and anxieties and it's like, oh my gosh, oh God, this is so, this is so hard. Can you help me please? Oh. And, and so that kind of can be our frantic prayer. And again, that's, that's great. I think we should talk to God about everything in our life. But in those moments of prayer, I think sometimes we don't, we don't ask him because often what he does for me at least is he'll start by pointing out something in me that he wants to change. And I don't really always want to have that conversation. It's like, God, I just, I, I felt like I was doing pretty good. So let's just keep it at that. Let's talk about these other problems. And let's not talk about the problems going on in here. Because I don't, again, if, if you relate to me, I think we don't want to let God have his way in our life all the time. But we certainly want him to have our way in other people's lives. Let me say that again. We don't want God to have his way in our life. We want him to have our way in other people's lives. And that's what we'll talk to him about. And so I think that's a trap that we can fall into. And so it's just good to like take a moment and be silent and just glorify the Lord. Take a moment just to be grateful for who he is and what he's done. And I think it widens our perspective a little bit. And so, um, and, and, and you know, even, even saying that, this issue is not settled. <laughs> This is going to come up again in the book of Acts. And then Paul writes the whole book of Galatians about this same issue. So let's continue on though. Um, in verses 19 through 26, it says, Now those who have been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught in large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So things are continuing to shift in, in kind of in pretty rapid ways. Like sort of, again, like we've talked about multiple times in Acts, like this is beyond anybody's ability to control or organize or something. They're just kind of like responding to this stuff that God's doing and trying to, you know, they're really essentially they're trying to keep up. And I love that, you know, it talks about how, th so there's Jewish people who are, who are fleeing kind of Jerusalem and, and those areas because of the persecution that's there. And they're kind of just spreading the gospel to other people that are kind of the same cultural, ethnic background as them. And so they meet people who are like them and they share the gospel with them. And I love that then it talks about there's these guys who are coming from Cyprus and Cyrene, and in a sense, they like don't know any better. That they just are telling everybody about Jesus. Like they did, apparently they didn't get the memo that this is only for devout Jews. <laughs> and I love that because I think this is exactly how God works. And I think we, especially those of us who have maybe been following Jesus for a long time, we need to be very careful because we have, you know, me, like whether we try to or not, we have picked up cultural and sometimes religious baggage along the way. 
And when we see new people come into faith in Jesus, we're excited. They want to spread the gospel. We need to certainly come along, encourage them, help them. They're, we can certainly impart wisdom and help, but we also need to be careful not to get in the way. Because what if these guys along the way encountered some Jews that are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because it says large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Because here's the, here's the reality for us as, as believers. The gospel and the truth of God's word, it never, ever changes. It's always good news to everyone who hears it. But the way we present it needs to be current. It needs to hit people where they are. Not, again, hear me, we don't change the, the, the bedrock truth of the gospel, but our presentation of the gospel needs to be fresh. It needs to be new. And we see that throughout all of Acts. We'll see that in Paul. We see that in, like, in, in a lot of different characters throughout, of, throughout Acts, the way that they just jump into a situation and they respond to kind of the cultural um, realities where they're at and different things. And they, try, they find a creative way to communicate the unchanging truth of the gospel. And so what's happening here is there's just kind of be a really, really seismic shift that's happening. The center of Christianity really is moving. Like Antioch, by the end of the, the book of Acts, becomes the center of mission. It's really like the sending hub for um, the, the early church. And so the, um, what, what God is doing here, what we see God doing, is he's writing a, a new chapter in the story of his family where he's building this unified body out of wildly different people. I mean, wildly different. These people speak different languages, have a different ethnic and cultural background. They probably have very different political ideologies and life experiences and different, you know, economic realities and all this different stuff. All of these different kinds of people are being brought together into the family of God. God's family is supposed to look diverse. It's one of the greatest testimonies to the world around us that this is something that is not man-made. Because when man-made movements happen, it's always about us versus them. <laughs> and when the, the movement of Jesus comes through, it's about Jesus versus our flesh and our sin. So we get to be the in-group only entering through Jesus and none of us deserve it. So we have to be very careful because, again, what's happening with this circumcision party and, and probably a lot of these Jewish believers, this is so familiar to them that they probably feel like in some way they have helped Jesus save them. That, yeah, 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 Jesus saved me by grace. I put my faith in him, but also I'm helping him out a little bit because I'm living a very godly life. And we're warned against that in scripture. It's like, hey, if you started, <laughs> if this whole relationship with God was initiated by God's grace, then don't for one second think that you're maintaining it by your good works now. Certainly we should have the fruit of the spirit coming out of us. Absolutely. And, and in fact, having the, the Holy Spirit is one of, one of the primary ways that we can have assurance of our salvation. But we don't add anything to the free gift of Jesus. It really, it really is only by God's grace. And when we believe that, it radically alters the way that we interact with other people. 
If you've met somebody, a Christian, who is humble and kind and gentle and loving and faithful, they probably understand something about God's grace. That they didn't do anything to deserve it and they're just happy to be in the room. Like, they're, like I'm just grateful to be part of the family of God. <laughs> I don't deserve to be here. I'm just glad to be in the room. And so in Ephesians chapter four, that's why Paul is talking about like, hey, in God's family, it's like be kind and tenderhearted to one another. Forgiving each other, just as Christ in God forgave you. I mean, just those descriptions right there, is that a rare experience in this world? To experience kindness and tenderheartedness? To experience forgiveness? It feels very rare. <laughs> But that's what it's, that's what it's, how it's described to be a part of the family of God. And I know this because of, uh, in, in large part because of being married. But here's the thing is, it's like, man, if, if we're getting all bent out of shape about little disagreements, it's likely we're both missing something. Like when me and, me and Amber Lynn, my wife, don't see eye to eye on something, it's likely we're both missing something. For sure, I'm missing something. But... Sometimes we both come to a different conclusion. And I think that's a great picture of what it looks like in the church. That no one person has it all down. That's why Jesus has made a, bod, a diverse body because we bring unique perspective and we can together pursue seeing the fullness of who Jesus is. And that's ultimately what Ephesians 4 gets at. So let's look at that a little bit more. What does this look like to be a part of the body of Christ? Verses 27 through 30, it says, In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. So real quickly, just want to want to define something. And again, don't have time to get into this very deeply, but hopefully this can just um, just bring a, a level of understanding to the, the idea of prophecy. So in a very condensed way, so there's uh, Old Testament prophets. Those were people who spoke the very words of God. So they would say, thus says the Lord, and then they would say they would deliver their message. And it's written down in scripture for us and it's God's words, okay? Then we also have the apostles who in, in the very same way were speaking God's very words written down in scripture for us to read today. Then you have people like Agabus or like the people that Paul was talking to when he was writing to the Corinthian church where he was encouraging them to, to, um, to prophesy in, when they get together. Um, prophecy uh, in that is that just has a slightly different meaning. So I just want to describe what this looks like. So rather than speaking the very words of God, they're using merely human words to report something that God has brought to mind. They're using human words to report something that God has brought to mind. So it doesn't carry the same weight and authority. It's not announced with, thus says the Lord, blah, blah, blah. It's, hey, I'm feeling this thing like you know, maybe I don't, and I, I don't know how this happened for Agabus, but maybe he's like, hey, I had this dream or we're sitting here in this meeting and all of a sudden this 
thing popped in my head, maybe a picture or just a phrase or something. And he's like, hey, guys, I just got this sense that maybe this is something that's going to happen. This famine is going to happen. And then what happens in the church is there's other people that first of all are like, is Agabus a trusted dude? And have we kind of tested and weighed other things that he said before? And apparently he was. Because what happens then is the church kind of together says, yeah, I think this is trustworthy. And then the whole church together raises funds or help for these other people that are going to experience this famine. And again, this is something that he's doing. He's doing it under the authority of God's word. So it's not, never in New Testament prophecy is never something where it's like, oh, this God's word says this, but now God is saying that it's never that. That is not from God. And also it's not something that somebody just gets to say, hey, this is, this is what I feel like God is telling me. So now you all have to obey it. It's always this thing that comes with gentleness and like, hey, this is what I'm sensing with the discernment of our collective church community, especially like the leadership in our church or whatever, is this something that resonates with other people? Is just other people with discernment, does this make sense? And if people are like, yes, I think so. Or yeah, I think, I think the Lord's confirming that for me too. Well, then that's a good sign that that's something to listen to. So again, that's kind of what's happening here. And that's about all the time that I have to, to talk about that. But this is a, this is a gift in, in Ephesians chapter four specifically talks about the gift of prophecy being one of the five gifts that God has given for people in the church, not professional church people, but people in the church to express shepherds, teachers, evangelists, apostles, and prophets. In, in, in first Corinthians, Paul's, or second Corinthians, Paul is talking about, hey, when there's, when you're gathered together, um, don't have a bunch of people speaking in tongues, especially if there's no uh, nobody to say what they're actually saying because that just draws attention to a person and it doesn't edify or encourage anybody. He said, but have a few people prophesy. In a sense, have people listen to the Lord and then share what he brings to mind. And again, not in a thus says the Lord, you have to obey this kind of thing, but hey, God just brought, you know, again, it could be a passage of scripture to mind, or maybe, you know, it could be a future event, but it also could just be an encouragement. Like, hey, I think God is really encouraging us to continue to, you know, just to do a great job loving each other or something like that. You know, something that's in line with his word. Okay, so anyway, um, you get a picture here of the church working together because if Agabus didn't operate in his gifting, they would have had no warning about this famine. And if the church around him hadn't discerned, like, is this real? Or if they had just been like, ah, be quiet, Agabus, you're so weird. If they had just done that, then there's no help for the people, or, you know, there would be no action taken. And then if the whole church hadn't come around collectively and like taken up a collection for the folks that were going to experience this famine, there would have been no help. So this is just a great picture of how the, the, the Lord uses a church community as his body to do something that he cares about. So there's a diversity of gifts that God gives to the church. And he, and it, like it says in Ephesians chapter four, it's something that he's given so that we would all be together grown in maturity, like grown up to maturity in Christ. And that we would all together as a body express the fullness of who Jesus is. And that doesn't happen through a sermon. <laughs> 
If this is all it is, that's lame. It's not even close to what Jesus has described in his word. And I just love that you see that kind of coming out in the book of Acts. So a great question to ask is for, for us, not only how am I interacting in the body of Christ? Am I being critical? Am I being judgmental? Do I have this narrow view and I'm just holding to it? And I'm like, no, I will not look out the window. Or am I sensitive? Am I tenderhearted? And am I, am I kind? And am I forgiving? I love this statement that Paul makes as he's writing. He says, he says, and if some of you disagree with what I just said, God will make that clear to you too. And I just love that because that communicates like, hey, I'm, I know I'm right about this, but I also trust that the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to change your heart. And I don't need to just have an argument with you until you walk away crying. That we can have a conversation about this, absolutely. But if you disagree with me, that's all right. I'll trust God to make that clear to you. And if I'm wrong on something, I'll trust that God will make that clear to me too. And I think it's just beautiful to have that kind of humility in the family of God. And I mean, talk about the difference between somebody walking into a church where people look and like, you know, like, who are you? (laughs) Versus like, hey, And as you find out more details about their life, and maybe they've had a rough time. Maybe they're making some bad choices. But it's like, man, you know what? You belong here. Because for me, I shouldn't even be in the building. But Jesus has poured out just incredible grace on me. And he's got the same available for you. That's a very different experience. And then, not only that, not how are we interacting together relationally, but how are we operating together as a body? Do you know that you are a gift to the church? You are a gift to the church. Just like every one of these interns up here is a gift to the church, right? You, you do, and you're just like, I'm just sitting in the seat. Yeah, well, God has brought you here to operate in a unique way only you can do. So think about it. What is that? What would that look like? Certainly we have ways that you can serve, like, you know, like you saw in the announcements. Like we, we love having opportunities to serve, like serving in our kids' ministry or whatever. But God has also gifted you in other ways. And what would that look like? Not just inside, like not just like how do we make this church run, but how do we be the church? What would that look like for you? What are ways that God has gifted you? And <clears throat> so I'll invite the band to come up, but as we, as we wrap up and just kind of respond in worship, I think it's a great opportunity to just be slow to speak <laughs> and listen and ask the Lord, hey, what would you bring to mind for me today? Is there some way where I have just had this narrow vision that I've set my own priorities for my life and you want to help me to see the bigger picture of what you're doing? That's a great question to ask today. And just see if the Lord brings anything to mind. Another great question to ask is, God, is there a way that you've gifted me in a way that you would want me to step into just serving and loving and encouraging my church family? And just allow him to bring that to mind. And then it's up to us with the Holy Spirit's help to to step into those things and be obedient. 
But as we sing, you know, it's great. I, I obviously, I, I lead worship here regularly. I love singing. But I also think it's great sometimes as we worship just to use it as a moment for reflection. So even as Josie leads this next song, I think it's a great opportunity just for us to say, you know, we can stand together in worship and reverence for God and just say, Lord, would you speak to me? And so maybe some of us won't, won't even sing out loud. We'll just be worshiping the Lord in our hearts through a posture of humility saying, Lord, would you speak to me? Would you show me if there's a way that you've created me to serve that you want me to step into? Or, or if, is there something that you want me to, 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 to adjust about my attitude or how I relate to people? So let's pray. Jesus, we do invite you to speak. We thank you that you've been speaking. Man, uh, sermons and, and preaching is great, but it is not nearly sufficient uh, to speak to a room as diverse as what we have here. And I thank you for each individual that you know them deeply and intimately you've made them and you have specific um, application for their life. Pray that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.